previously on Conspiracy Land. MBS stands up in the middle of the room and begins to lecture Obama. You don't understand the Saudi justice system and dripping condescension, you know. It laid bare the utter bullshit of the narrative around MBS to me. A day of deadly bombing by Saudi-led warplanes. Witnesses said many civilians were caught up in the blast. The scene there is 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 something that I that that I never will forget. There were families with with their bare hands digging through the rubble, trying to find uh, not just bodies of their loved ones, but missing body parts of their loved ones. Saud al-Qahtani basically makes his pitch to MBS to sort of do an electronic warfare in favor of MBS. Basically, he called on his followers to submit names to the blacklist. You tell me who the problems are, and we're going to go after them. And then Jamal slowly, slowly starts discovering that his hope of reforming the system is not actually working. Then he wrote back to me, I've been thinking it's time I gave up and retire somewhere safe in the West just to be free and write freely. For all the momentous events in the Middle East, there is one issue in particular that became something of an obsession for senior officials during the last years of the Obama administration. It was the -the behind-the-scenes power struggle inside Saudi Arabia's royal family to determine who would become the country's next king. It pitted a longtime favorite of the U.S. intelligence community, Interior Minister Mohammed bin Nayef, known as MBN, against his up-and-coming and ruthlessly ambitious cousin, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. And it was, says Joseph Westphal, then the U.S. ambassador in Riyadh, all that Washington wanted to hear about. I'm talking about the president, the vice president, the national security advisor, you know, Susan Rice, John Kerry, and others. A lot of people were interested in who's going to be the next king. And I was, I was always queried, what do you think? What's going to, what do you think is going to happen? A little context here. As we told you in the last episode, when 79-year-old King Salman inherited the throne upon the death of his brother Abdullah in 2015, he named his 29-year-old son, Mohammed bin Salman, the defense minister and deputy crown prince. But in deference to tradition, he named the longtime interior chief, MBN, as the crown prince, the next in line for the throne. And yet, as MBS accumulated ever more power, it seemed he was gunning to shove his 58-year-old cousin MBN aside. And Washington wanted answers. I had a meeting with Mohammed bin Salman in his office about something else. And we're sitting there, and I said... Your Royal Highness, I want to ask you a question. Who is going to be the next king of Saudi Arabia? You or Naif? And I don't think he was really surprised by that because of the relationship we had. And so he said very bluntly, Naif will be the next king. Was he lying? I don't know. I don't know. I would say that that's not the way he wanted things to happen, probably. And you knew that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was a reason the Obama White House was fixated on this issue, as Ben Rhodes, then Deputy National Security Advisor, told me. You're talking about 
not just like the next in line to have some government job. You're talking about like a trillion dollars. If you're the king of Saudi Arabia, you're sitting on top of all the oil and you're sitting on top of the sovereign wealth fund and you control it. I mean, there's not, that's the richest person in the world. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's whoever the king of Saudi Arabia is. Um, That's a lot of incentive. Incentive enough that a major campaign was launched in Washington in 2015, largely invisible to the public, to pave the way for MBS's takeover. The point man in this campaign was yet another incredibly influential figure, Mohammed bin Zayed, known as MBZ. He's the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and widely seen as the most powerful figure in the United Arab Emirates. You know, the next few months was one of the most aggressive influence operations that, that, that I experienced in eight years. It was an influence operation in which the Emiratis, working hand-in-glove with their Saudi allies, deployed a gallery of former generals, Pentagon, and intelligence officials, many of them enriched by lucrative speaking fees and consulting contracts. They all delivered a consistent message. MBS, not MBN, is the wave of the future. Oh, you know, MBN, he's old, you know, we need a young man, and he, you know, this guy's going to modernize the kingdom, and... So they worked Congress, they worked the national security establishment, they worked the media, they worked the most influential columnists in America on these issues. They were working us, but they were also kind of looking past us a bit. Looking past the Obama administration to the election of a new president who was not who anybody was expecting. It was Donald Trump who emerged at an early morning hour to claim victory. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us on our victory. And it didn't take long for the Saudis and their Emirati allies to start working the new crowd in Washington, mounting ever more sophisticated influence operations. The Saudis would even, according to the FBI, infiltrate one of America's largest social media companies, all designed to make sure that MBS would have a free hand to eliminate any and all rivals and silence critical voices who might get in his way voices like that of Jamal Khashoggi. I'm Michael Isikoff. Welcome back to Conspiracyland, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is Episode 6, Influence Operations. Just days after the U.S. election, Khashoggi, back in Saudi Arabia working as a journalist, was invited to speak via Skype on a panel assembled by a D.C. think tank, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The topic? What the triumph of the New York real estate mogul might mean for U.S. policy in the Middle East. Predictably, Khashoggi, ever the contrarian, offered some words of caution. He reminded his audience about Trump's long history of anti-Muslim rhetoric and his plans to impose a ban on immigration from predominantly Muslim countries. Here's a recording of Khashoggi from that day. I'm sure Saudi Arabian officials uh, were caught off guard by the election of Mr. Trump. Um, I think Saudi Arabia should be ready for surprises, for negative remarks coming from the Trump uh, administration. And we need to, in Saudi Arabia, to create some kind of an alliance Muslim countries who could be targeted by this right-wing administration. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Jamal. Um, uh, A note of concern 
uh, and uh, some anxiety from, uh, from Jamal Khashoggi, our Saudi journalist. No sooner did Khashoggi make these remarks, he got an unexpected phone call from that menacing figure we've told you a lot about in this podcast, the henchman, Saud al Qatani, media advisor to the royal palace and all-powerful enforcer for MBS. When I spoke with Wada Kanfor, a former Al Jazeera editor, he shared the warning Katani had given Jamal. He said, I have instructions that they ask you to stop writing tweets, articles, or appearing in any conference in public. So Jamal said, okay, is there is any reason for that? He said, I don't have any reason, but these are the instructions. Please abide by them. So Jamal stopped really tweeting or writing or doing anything since the order came from the highest authority in the kingdom for about a few weeks. Jamal complied with the demand and expected the ban on his writing would soon be lifted as Katani had assured him. But when he didn't hear back, he started to get nervous. Actually, Saud told him, this is going to be a temporary measure, and we will revise it very soon. He said, after three, four weeks, I phoned Saud again. I said, Saud, now what I should do, because you didn't come back to me. He said, you should never do anything, and don't even call me until I come back to you. The order is still valid until now. At that time, Jamal realized that they would like him totally to be silenced inside Saudi Arabia. And that was the moment when he started contemplating the idea of leaving Saudi Arabia and to do something from outside. It was, in short, the moment Jamal Khashoggi decided to live in exile in the United States. But it wasn't easy, personally or professionally. To some of his Saudi friends, Jamal couldn't quite accept that he was being pushed aside and rendered irrelevant by the new powers that be in Riyadh. Before flying to the U.S., he spent some time in London with his old colleague, Nawaf Fobaid. And, uh, you know, I told him, listen, you know, the game is up. You know? We are not part of the new establishment. And uh, for whatever reasons, we may agree or disagree. We, you and I, know this is the rule of the game. We've played it enough. We know the rules. And now that there is a new monarch, now there is a new team, we're not part of it. But Jamal, he says, had a hard time with that new reality. He was still thinking, no, but how can they not need me? And that was the issue. He needed to be there. He was like, yes, but I should be the media advisor. I should be the media advisor to the king. He thought that he would be the perfect fit to be his advisor. And he kept talking about it. As Khashoggi was being silenced, two other Saudi operations inside the United States were underway, covert and highly sensitive. And one of them had a clear purpose, to curry favor with the soon-to-be occupant of the Oval Office. And the vehicle to do so was a new landmark in Washington that had just opened its doors, the Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, just a few blocks from the White House. New reporting that Saudi Arabia used U.S. military veterans to pump money into a Trump hotel. In late 2016, Saudi Arabia and its lobbyists were stunned when the U.S. Congress passed JASTA, the Justice Against the Sponsors of Terrorism Act. It's a law that would allow the families of the victims of 9-11 to sue the Saudi government. For all the Saudi lobbying firepower, 
it was impossible to overcome the emotional appeal of 9-11 victims. 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were exactly Saudi nationals. We need to let the evidence that we've collected against the Saudis into a courtroom. If someone you loved was murdered and the person was just able to go away scot-free, would, would you be okay with that? So days after Trump's election, the Saudis and their American lobbyists came up with an ingenious plan. They would deploy an army of American veterans, ostensibly to persuade Congress to reverse course and overturn the new law. But it was also a backdoor scheme to funnel Saudi cash to the president's private business. David, this is a shocking story. 500 rooms in a few months? That's right. The Saudi lobbyists started reserving blocks of rooms at Trump's hotels starting in December 2016, within a month of his election. And between December 2016 and February 2017, they reserved 500 nights, so 500 rooms at Trump's hotel. That must stand out on the balance sheet of a hotel, right? Like, presumably not a lot of other people are booking 500 rooms at a time. The idea was to have those American veterans come to Washington and make the dubious argument that JASTA, designed to bring a measure of justice to the families of those who died on 9-11, would prompt foreign governments to sue veterans in their courts for drone strikes or alleged war crimes, real or imagined, by the U.S. government. As a lobbying strategy, the plan never made much sense. Congress had already passed JASTA and even overrode a veto by President Obama. But as an inducement, the Saudi lobbyists offered the veterans an all-expense-paid trip to Washington and free rooms and an open bar at the new Trump International Hotel. Yeah, it's a creative way of getting money to the U.S. president's business. That's Zach Everson, an independent journalist who tracked developments at the Trump Hotel. He did not put that hotel in a blind trust. So here you've got the Saudis spending over a quarter of a million dollars, and the president could just take that out right away you know, whatever his profit share of that is. Saudi Arabia was hardly the only foreign country to do this. Everson tracked 31 foreign countries that held events or parties at the Trump Hotel. This even spurred litigation that Trump, by maintaining his ownership of the family business, was violating the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution, barring gifts from foreign entities. But the Saudis led the way and were the most creative in how they went about it. They put the rooms in the names of the veterans so their fingerprints were not immediately apparent. They were, you know, a little bit more wily and surreptitious than some of their uh, neighbors over there in that they did this hidden. You know, they, they showed how you can do it. They showed there was no reluctance to do it. The role of the Saudis in this operation came out in dribs and drabs. But the story started to get traction when some of the veterans came forward to say they had no idea their trip to D.C. and stay at the Trump Hotel was bankrolled by the Saudi government. They never once mentioned that Saudi Arabia was behind it. Dustin DeMoss is an Air Force veteran living in Tulsa who agreed to go on the trip and came to regret it. What made me mad is that we were misled into trading our own patriotism for another country so that the other country could get by with doing what they did on 9-11. David Kassler is a Marine Corps veteran who was flown in from California and quickly became suspicious. And he said, hey man, I think we're working for the Saudis. And I'm like, you know what? I have suspicions too, but don't react. Don't say anything. We, we need to gather more information at this point. You didn't want to be carrying water for the Saudis. Hell no. 
Why not? We're talking about a foreign government trying to influence policy in the United States for their own gain. And you feel that you were used? Yeah, we were definitely used. I wrote a story about all this for Yahoo News in March 2017, raising a question as to whether the Saudi lobbying effort might have violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act, the 1930s-era law that requires full disclosure of foreign efforts to influence the American political system. At the time, by the way, the Saudi's top D.C. lobbyist, Michael Petrosello of Corvus Communications, told me, somewhat improbably, that he only put the veterans up at the Trump Hotel because it offered the best rate. The Justice Department never followed up on what looked to me like a fairly blatant attempt by a foreign country to covertly influence American policy. But Justice did follow up when the FBI stumbled upon another Saudi influence operation that was arguably more sinister. The target? The San Francisco headquarters of one of America's social media giants. And, as federal court documents later alleged, there was a clear trail that led directly back to Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the rising new power in the royal court. In the United States, you have the Congress. In Saudi Arabia, we have Twitter. Omar Abdulaziz was among the most prominent of Saudi dissidents, and someone who would soon loom large in Jamal Khashoggi's life. Although much younger, Omar, like Jamal, was a son of the regime. His father had been a top Saudi intelligence official. Like Jamal, he had been energized by the Arab Spring, using Twitter to celebrate the initial outbreak of democratic protests throughout the region, and then to denounce his government for helping to crush them. And as a university student in Canada, he had become a sharp regime critic. Using edgy tweets as his megaphone, he connected in Twitter's virtual space with thousands of his fellow Saudis, yearning to break free from their country's closed society. It wasn't only a platform for us to to talk about what we do believe. It was a place where would we gather, where we would see people, you know, who share the similar ideas or, or beliefs or who would try to do anything peacefully to change the situation in our country. Then, in February 2016, he received an odd message from Twitter. His account, it said, may have been targeted by a state-sponsored actor. The alert didn't say which state-sponsored actor or what information they might have collected. Abdulaziz didn't think much about it at the time. He changed his password and switched to two-factor authentication and continued his active tweeting. I thought this is like a, a problem. It was solved and it's not happening again. And But I didn't know how big that was by that time. What he didn't know until more than three years later was that he was squarely in the crosshairs of an extraordinary espionage operation that was allegedly conceived in Riyadh and orchestrated by a senior aide to MBS. Our chief justice correspondent, Pierre Thomas, is in Washington with the details. Good morning, Pierre. George, good morning. It's a deeply disturbing story. Allegations of compromised Twitter employees willing to access and steal the private information of users who were seen as critics of the Saudi government. This is the first time that U.S. prosecutors have accused Saudi Arabia of surveilling people inside the United States. So, Nick, what is the evidence? Is there evidence that this online surveillance is actually being conducted by the Saudi government. The main recruiter of these two Twitter employees was a Saudi official and heads the private office 
of Mohammed bin Salman. He is basically described as a secretary of Mohammed bin Salman. The secretary you're hearing about, who served as head of MBS's private foundation, is Badr al-Asakar, referred to in a federal indictment as Foreign Official One. Asakar, the feds say, flew to San Francisco in June 2014 to tour Twitter's headquarters and was greeted by the chief of Twitter's Middle East partnerships, Ahmed Abuama, a dual U.S.-Lebanese citizen tasked with overseeing Saudi Twitter accounts. In classic spycraft fashion, Asakar, the MBS man, cultivated Ahmed, the Twitter man. Asakar allegedly showered him with up to $300,000 in jewelry and cash, a chunk of it routed through a bank account in Beirut. In exchange, prosecutors say, Ahmed turned over the personal details of a dissident behind an anonymous Twitter account critical of the Saudi regime. At the same time, Asaka recruited yet another Twitter mole, an engineer named Ali al-Zabara. Prosecutors allege that al-Zabara turned over the personal details, the emails, phone numbers, and IP addresses of 6,000 users. In November 2019, the feds moved in. In custody this morning, Ahmad Abuamo. Federal law enforcement sources confirm that he was arrested in Seattle. Ali al-Zabara, who is a Saudi citizen, is said to have fled the U.S. There are a few things worth noting about the Twitter plot. The first is that while Abu Amma remains in the U.S., still facing criminal charges of wire fraud, money laundering, and acting as an agent of a foreign government, al-Zabara, the fugitive who got away, ended up in Saudi Arabia. He promptly got a job with the MBS foundation that a soccer headed. His assignment, according to the FBI, working on a team to monitor and manipulate social media for the benefit of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And then there is this. Anybody reading the Justice Department indictment of these two Saudi spies can't miss the reference to a soccer's boss, referred to delicately as Saudi royal family member number one. That's MBS himself. And the reference is not an accident. There's striking evidence that the Saudi crown prince was in charge of the Twitter espionage caper and even boasted about it. And then I think MBS saw it as a moment to brag, saying, yeah, it was us, we did that. We have our guy at Twitter. That's Khalid al-Jabri. His father, Saad al-Jabri, is a former senior Saudi counterterrorism official. He once worked closely with the CIA as a top deputy to MBN, MBS's rival. He's now living in hiding in Canada. Saad al-Jabri is also suing MBS in federal court in Washington, accusing the Saudi leader of running a vast espionage operation in the United States, under a soccer's direction, to spy on Saudi dissidents. In his suit, Jabri recounts a conversation in the spring of 2015 in which MBS bragged about how he had gotten one of those dissident accounts kicked off Twitter. After MBS made his reference to our guy at Twitter, Saad al-Jabri, according to his son, wanted to know if the prince's spy was a Saudi national. And MBS replied, He said, no, he's, he's an American and we paid him you know, this sum of money. A million Saudi rials. Exactly. A one million Saudi rial payoff. When converted to U.S. dollars, that's pretty much the amount that the Justice Department says Ahmed Abuama, the dual U.S. citizen, received from the Saudi government to spy and steal information on MBS's behalf. The other thing worth noting about this operation? 
Seven months after Twitter was informed of the Saudi espionage plot, Saudi royal family member number one, for all practical purposes an unindicted co-conspirator, came to the United States for that charm offensive tour we told you about in the last episode. The one where he played the Moonlight Sonata at the Georgetown home of then-Secretary of State Kerry. On the very same trip, MBS met in New York with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and Dorsey showed some noticeable deference to the Saudi leader who had just allegedly stolen his company blind. Perhaps that's not surprising. Just months earlier, Saudi Arabia's Kingdom Holding Company, owned by MBS's cousin, billionaire Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, had upped its stake in Twitter to more than $350 million. This made the Saudi royal one of the company's five biggest shareholders. Mark Kleiman is a Los Angeles-based attorney representing Omar Abdulaziz, the Saudi dissident, in a lawsuit against Twitter. Omar's Twitter account had been one of those hacked by the Saudi operation. Kleiman says he was flabbergasted when he saw what took place when MBS and Dorsey met. There's this amazing photograph we've gotten our hands on that shows Dorsey practically kneel. Well, it's an exaggeration to say he was kneeling, but he he had lowered himself and his head was bowed um, and inflected toward MBS as he was shaking MBS's hand. Here he is practically curtsying to the guy. It's I, I, it's got to be galling to anybody who's been put at risk for this. We asked Twitter for comment, including why Dorsey would have met with a foreign leader whose spies had allegedly just infiltrated his company and stolen its proprietary information. A company spokesman declined to address the meeting, saying in an email only that Twitter had notified affected users about the theft of their information and cooperated closely with government investigations. We remain committed to protecting the public conversation from abuse by state actors, the spokesman said. As for what the Saudis did with the information they allegedly collected from their spies, Omar Abdulaziz at first had no clue. But he would get a warning in August 2017 when Al-Qahtani, the MBS enforcer who had created a blacklist of regime critics, published his own ominous tweet. Does a pseudonym protect you from the blacklist, he wrote? No. The Saudis, he added, had technical ways of figuring out who they are and even their IP addresses. It was, Al-Qahtani wrote, a secret I'm not going to say. But the alleged Twitter hack would go on to have devastating consequences for the people Omar Abdulaziz was communicating with, one of whom was Jamal Khashoggi. There's a direct trail of blood drops from this hack to the death of uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. My first foreign visit, a trip to the heart of the Muslim world. It's likely he'll conclude the biggest arms deal in history when he's in Riyadh. In May 2017, Donald Trump flew to Saudi Arabia for what became a veritable love fest of a summit. 
It was marked by the announcement of giant new arms sales for the Saudi military to pursue its bloody war in Yemen. There was also a memorable photograph in which Trump, King Salman, and Egypt's al-Sisi all clutched a glowing orb, a surreal scene straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. The White House official who coordinated this extravaganza? Kushner was the point person on arranging the trip. Justin Sheck, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, covered the president's trip and is the co-author of Blood and Oil, a book about MBS. He says that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, began swapping WhatsApp messages with MBS over the logistics for the trip, deferring to his newfound friend over the details. It was basically put into the Saudis' hands to kind of create the, the dream trip of Mohammed bin Salman, doing so to really flatter Trump and make Trump feel like these were the people who got him, who understood him on a deep level. There was something else that happened during the trip that didn't get any press attention, but was clearly noticed by both U.S. and Saudi officials. MBN, still the crown prince, was nowhere to be seen. He was the Saudi official who had worked closely with U.S. officials for years, and who MBS had assured U.S. Ambassador Westville would be the next king. At one point, MBS had Kushner and his wife Ivanka Trump for a private dinner, and MBN never got an invite. It pretty much signaled to all concerned what was about to happen. Barely a month later, on the evening of June 20, 2017, just as Ramadan was about to end, MBS summoned his older cousin MBN to his royal palace in Mecca. When he arrived, MBN's aides and security guards were stripped of their cell phones and weapons, while MBN was ushered into a waiting room. He was instructed to sign a letter resigning as crown prince. At first, the proud MBN refused, but as he quickly discovered, he didn't have a choice. They threatened to humiliate him. And finally, you know, the guy is like diabetic. He's in his late 50s. He's not in great health. Over the course of the night, he finally agreed to resign. But um, he said, you know, I'll do it later later today. Um, I'm not going to sign anything now. And so they walk him out of the room into, sort of to his shock, into a brightly lit room with cameras where MBS is waiting. And they f- announce the resignation right there. And, and MBS sort of, you know in this like looming, like very imposing way, kind of walks up to him and says, you know, oh, uh, thank you, thank you, cousin, you know, and they just sort of did it on tape. Doesn't MBS, like, um, embrace him? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, he, he gives him a hug and a kiss. And it's one of these, you know, one of these sort of threatening kisses. It's like, I see what's going on here. It's the end. It's the end for this guy. <laughs> it's kind of like right out of The Godfather, right? I mean, yeah, I didn't want to say it. I mean, it is in a way. It's such a cliche, but it, it's also something where, you know, it's just amazing that, th- that there's like there are places where things are still done this way, you know. While MBS was consolidating his power and Al Qatani was issuing his warnings, Jamal was settling into his new life in Washington. He was anxious, lonely, and uncertain about his future. Kim Gaddis, a journalist based in Beirut who was working on a book about the Middle East, recalls flying to Washington in the summer of 2017 and reaching out to Jamal. She invited him to lunch at the Blue Duck Tavern, one of her favorite D.C. restaurants, and was immediately struck by his demeanor. The world-famous journalist who had braved the most powerful figures in his country was at sea. And there was something 
very poignant and, and sad about the lunch because there was this man who felt lost. What he told me, what struck me most was that he had obviously met the crown prince as a journalist uh, early on, and he was first encouraged by the fact that the crown prince was including many people in his um, meetings to get advice, ideas. It felt inclusive. It felt like the young prince was listening. Jamal took that as a sign he could also be critical in a constructive way in his writings. But that did not go down well, and that became clear to him very quickly. And yet, says Goddess, Jamal did not appear angry about what had happened to him. He's not ranting about the crown prince. He's barely criticizing him. He's still looking to see whether he can be allowed back into the fold. He's all the way in the United States. There's an ocean between him and the kingdom. And yet, he is still abiding by the ban on tweeting and writing. No, he was waiting for permission. What's, what's chilling is that when Jamal is given permission to write again, he tweets his thanks to the prince. That's his first tweet after months of silence. And he tweets in Arabic, may no free pen be broken and no Twitter users silenced in the era of the crown prince. That's Jamal's first tweet after months of silence. Is that a thank you to the crown prince or a warning? Neither, neither thank you nor a warning. It's an appeal for magnanimity and an appeal for reason, an appeal to reason. Indeed, Jamal's willingness, even now, to show he was loyal can be seen in a surprising letter he sent to the Saudi Minister of Culture just a few weeks later, proposing that he head up a new think tank in Washington. It would be called the Saudi Research Center, and it would, quote, lead the process of rebranding the mental image of the kingdom. Among its goals, he wrote, was to set up a monitoring team that would track negative news coverage of Saudi Arabia. Jamal asked for up to $2 million for this project and that he be hired as the new think tank's founding advisor. Jamal, at this point, was very much a man of contradictions, still playing both sides of the fence. At times, he was a loyalist who defended the regime and was trying desperately to get back in its good graces, even, as we told you earlier, suggesting he be named as the media advisor to the king. At others, he was the principled foe to the increasingly harsh crackdown MBS was ordering, a man committed to the democratic principles he had championed during the Arab Spring. This would earn him brutal attacks from al-Qahtani's army of trolls on Twitter when he inevitably started once again to speak out, and MBS's henchmen tightened the vice. How would you describe his state of mind? Tortured every day, especially when he went back on Twitter and was being attacked. Maggie Mitchell-Salem had been a former State Department official who had met Khashoggi years earlier, and the two became fast friends. When Jamal moved to the U.S. and rented an apartment in the Virginia suburbs, she reached out and became his informal advisor in the ways of Washington. 
but it was a relationship that would later prove problematic for both of them. She was, at this point, the executive director of the Guitar Foundation, a private nonprofit funded by the Qatari royal family in Doha, regional foes of the Saudis. By October, November, he knew that his eldest son, who is an American citizen, but also a Saudi citizen, went to the airport for a business trip and was told, you can't leave. He had a travel ban. So did his wife. This is what they do. They hold everyone you love hostage. It's something that I don't, I don't think those of us who live in democratic societies can understand. They turned friends on him. He knows that they didn't have a choice. Former colleagues were tweeting against him in Arabic, calling him awful things. Every day, he would agonize over whether to stay vocal. Should he go back or just go offline? It was excruciating for him, excruciating. He wept to hear a grown man on the phone crying for those he loves, for this life that he's been forced into. And what did he write? He writes that proposal to set up the think tank. Yeah. But he's proposing to sort of, you know, help improve the image of the kingdom that has just sent him into exile. Jamal was a loyal Saudi. He loved his country um, deeply. And he also loved his family. And I think he was struggling to find ways, again, for that middle ground. How can I be free to do what I need to do respectfully? And how can I also help my country do better than it's been able to do at burnishing its image? But his effort to find a middle ground to play on both sides of the fence essentially ended that September. Jamal had been invited to write guest columns for the global opinion section of the Washington Post. Just days earlier, the Saudi security services, now firmly under MBS's direction, had just rounded up 30 people, including a Saudi economist who was a good friend of Jamal's. The Saudi officers barged into their homes, wearing masks, seizing papers, books, and computers, accusing the suspects of being part of an anti-government conspiracy funded by the Qataris. Jamal decided to let loose and poured out his anger and frustration. Saudi Arabia wasn't always this repressive, read the headline on his first column. Now it's unbearable. Next on Conspiracy Land, the crown prince consolidates power. He decides in this place, he's going to build his own new vision of Saudi Arabia from scratch. And there's going to be this 100% surveillance state where everything is on film. And the web of surveillance draws ever closer around Jamal Khashoggi and all the people around him. I was like, oh my God, this is damning. Because they were both discussing like very provocative plans to counter the Saudi regime. While a lonely Jamal proposes to one woman in the United States. He said, you sure you you want to be, complete your life with me? I said, yes, Jamal. And then another in Turkey. 
my father knows very well the Arabs get married more than one at the same time. And then he asked him, are you sure you are not married? Jamatul, I'm not married. That's next on Conspiracy Land, Episode 7, A Tale of Two Women. A correction. In this episode, I said Maggie Mitchell-Salem had been the executive director of the Qatar Foundation. In fact, she was executive director of the Qatar Foundation International, an affiliated but separate organization. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News editor-in-chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interviewer subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout out to the folks at Long Story Short. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.